I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. This conversation is brought to you by Chanel. A visionary woman whose influence on the arts continues even today, Gabrielle Chanel created her life and her legend on her own terms. Discover her story at InsideChanel.com. Gabrielle Chanel grew up with cinema. Its use of movement revolutionized image, just as she did with women's appearances. Garnier and Renoir credited the fashion designer as costume designer in their films. MGM invited her to Hollywood to give its stars a new look. She understood that actresses like Homi Schneider, Elizabeth Taylor, and Jane Fonda would be the best ambassadors for her talent. Her timeless modernity entranced the actors of the French New Wave. Today, Chanel continues to leave her mark on the silver screen. Watch the film Gabrielle Chanel in cinema at InsideChanel.com. You know, in all the ways that I love and hate my apartment, it's I love and hate life. I love and hate my body. You know, I love and hate my existence. I love and hate being an artist, you know, and being a writer, you know, and it's like I'm condemned to be like this and do like this. And I guess I'd rather be here than not. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Let's start this episode with Eileen Miles with a quote from their most recent book, which is part of the Why I Write series from Yale University Press. Miles titled their contribution to that series for now. It really takes so much time to be a writer, and you have to be able to roll in time itself. That was my experience, it seems to me, like a dog likes to roll in dead fish at the beach, or a dog, my dog, 
stands in the shit of a stable underneath the body of a horse, trembling and feels awe, because there's so much shit and there's so much horse. But if you're somebody that wants to do that with your life, which is just waste your time moment to moment, I mean, it's great. I thought, I will waste it being a poet. I threw the gauntlet down, and what happened after that was nothing, and nothing is where I work. I just totally fell in love with this passage for how playful it is and joyful it is, how defiant it is in a way of prevailing attitudes about work and what work has to mean and the artist's duty to fit in to that rubric. It also feels like a um, tonally appropriate way to introduce the conversation that Miles and I had, which became a conversation about refusal, about wanting to say no, about wanting to dwell in negative space and use it as a fertile ground to come to a place of yes or come to a place of creativity and production, starting with rolling around in nothing, the shit of time and of nothing and nothing being where Miles' work happens. Miles has made a prolific many, many, many books and poetry collections long career out of that process. And it was such an honor to get to talk to them. Hope you enjoy it. The starting point for these conversations is usually just my asking, um, what the first thing you thought of when when offered this prompt to consider a, a, a time in your life, a period, an event, a thing, an experience that felt like some kind of threshold or point of departure that then found its way into your work? And I'm wondering if you had like a first a first impulse of of what to to talk about. I mean, honestly, my first impulse was no. Was I, 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 and I thought, I've thought so much about this actually. And I think, and I'll elaborate, but I'll, you know, because I just thought, oh, I don't like this thought, this, this idea of a threshold. And I mean, and I, and I realized that it's just like, because I feel like on some level, I feel like I'm very, I'm a very resistant personality. Like I feel like I, um, like when I first, when I think about my, if I, if I were to tell my drug story, it starts in childhood when I was um, I went to Catholic school and um, and I would go to the dentist. I was I was just so afraid of pain, so afraid of the dentist, so didn't like it. And so I would go to the dentist in my Catholic school uniform, which I don't know, just it seems like part of the visual. And I would sit <laughs> I would sit in the chair and they did this wonderful thing, which began, um, you know, a whole aspect of my life, which was they put gas, they don't really do it so much at the dentist anymore. They put gas on my nose and I got completely high. And I was probably, I don't know, nine years old or something. And it just, the world was, but what, the reason I mention it was my first impulse when this amazing thing happened to me was no, I will not let this happen to me. And I don't know if it has to do with some kind of abuse that I'm not entirely um, cognizant of, but I just, my impulse to what turned out to be a great pleasure and something that completely changed my relationship to the dentist. Cause after that, I always wanted to go to the dentist and I was ready, but my, my reaction to this thing that was mind altering and was, was deeply instantly going sort of into me or how I apprehended myself at that moment was to resist it and to stop it and to not let it happen. Like I didn't want to be changed and I didn't want to, and I feel like, um, so I, 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 when I was given this 
prompt, I really had that same response. Um, but, but to elaborate, which is my truest answer, if I haven't already given it, which was that um, it's very funny. Anytime something big has happened in my life, and I mean, um, not, not moving to New York to become a writer, which I've written about and I've thought about, and, um, but more like, I don't know, when I, when in my early 30s, I stopped drinking and taking drugs. And I had a real fear that it would ruin me as a writer. And I, um, I started to tell myself something that I've been telling myself now for 30 years, which is that if um, becoming a lesbian didn't ruin my writing, why would becoming sober ruin my writing, you know? And then years later, I think in 19... <laughs> Let's see, I, I, I became an academic for the first time in like a real, I had a real teaching job and I was faculty at the University of California in 2002. And so I was hired as a full professor and I was given a big income. And I would say many things happened at that moment. I moved to the West Coast. I became a professor um, and I had, a, I had a good income for the first time in my life. And I remember thinking that if being a lesbian and getting sober didn't ruin my writing, why would being an academic and having an income ruin my life, writing? And, um, and also, in, and I think moving to California, which is a big myth among New Yorkers, that if you move to California, it'll really ruin your life, writing, you know? Um, and I would say, you know, and, and it, just, it just goes on. I mean, I just think in, in 20, I mean, I've had different levels of... Um, attention. I mean, I think having a career means is almost defined by the idea of a line that looks a little bit like recording in progress, which is that suddenly you're like, whoa, whoa, people are really seeing me now. And then after that, no, no, nobody's seeing me now. Whoa, people are seeing me now. Whoa, no, nobody's seeing me. But in 2016, I, st I, I did have a hit of a bunch of celebrity and I got a lot of attention. And I kind of, even though I often feel like nobody sees me, I still, I, I just am being a writer at some level of recognition that I don't think I'll probably lose unless I just, I don't know what, I don't know what I would have to do, but I've sort of, you know, I sort of already have written enough books that I'm sort of in it in some way. And I'll, I'll, even if I stop, but, but I had the same thought. I thought if being known or quote famous, or if, if all these things haven't ruined my writing, why would fame or success or celebrity wrote my writing. So I think, I guess that, I think that is my answer, which is that, that, and I think in a way it has to do with um, something else I'm really interested in, which is hyperbole. You know, it's, it's just, um, I think people make bold, huge statements, not in order to say something that's true, but to open a space. And for me, the way I sort of open that sp space weirdly is kind of in a negative way. I kind of open it in a resistant way so that it's sort of like the way I've experienced these, I guess, thresholds is to say, um, if this whole litany of things have not ruined whatever it is that I understand as my writing practice, why would blah? And then the, the delight of that statement or that moment clears the space temporarily. And I just feel like myself you know, practicing poet, practicing artist, free for a moment, because I think that like, ba and ba and ba haven't done it. Why would ba, you know, and, um, and, and, and in that moment, I think it's kind of a, a litany that um, is momentarily liberating, because the thing is, it's, you know, it's, I think, just making work and is, and, um, and keeping, you know, keeping a career going is, is always hard and making work is hard. 
it just is hard, you know. But um, but it just like I think I kind of live with a feeling of something something really ruining me altogether, taking it away, and I and those are my thresholds. I love the. The, the that you that you wanted to say no I don't have any thresholds and then you just listed like nine thresholds right right um, and that what you're describing is sort of is this experience of it sounds like wanting wanting no trans like transformative change lest it fuck up the the space of writing exactly um, yeah 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 it just i think i think i kind of believe in a terrain that is featureless and of course that's just not true but somehow movement is probably the only thing i believe in and so i have to kind of make each thing go away even as i'm surmounting it you know how do you do that well i think it's a joke for me i just jokes are really important and i think in a way i don't know why it, it has this it has the affect of a private joke you know, and so I've always like, well, if if blah didn't hurt me and blah didn't, then, you know, and it's so it just it feels kind of wise guy, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's kind of it strikes me as sort of funny. And also it's kind of um, I think it's kind of a vernacular moment. You're not talking to God so much, but you're sort of talking to a familiar, which is, you know, some, you know, some kind of aspect of myself that that I, I'm I'm teeming with in some way you know and saying yeah we're not going to let this stop us you know (laughs) well and it seems like to me what's partially what's funny about it is that the is that everything you name is a good thing right i'm not going to be ruined by this positive development Uh, yes yes yeah good point thank you that's a good that's a good point yeah yeah um so i i suppose i do think of yeah yeah um yeah it's i mean i just i think that that, um, because like yeah go ahead I was just going to say because becoming a lesbian or becoming or, you know, coming out as lesbian or deciding to be sober or getting a job where you have real income, like these are all things that could be in theory, like really great for art. And Uh this, but this, but this fear, which I don't know, I have this too, of like any change in any direction might, um, might change me too much and then I will no longer be able to do the thing that I that I need to do which is which I've only ever done as my current self uh-huh uh-huh I know because I think that I I feel like the, the there's a, there's a studio of sorts that I think everybody constructs for themselves which is kind of a mental physical space that is made you know we're like birds we make these nests and it's composed of of things that are familiar you know, and it's sort of like you see this giant wind coming and you're like, this is going to blow my nest right out of the tree. How, you know, even, you know, as you say, even if it's a good thing. And I think, you know, so I think for me, there's sort of a fear of something totalizing, you know, which would and also kind of a, you know, it's like an allegorizing thing. I think we all and I think it's particularly dangerous for writers. We're always, you know, standing in a corner like a, a, a figure in a tarot card thinking, whoa. <laughs> At that corner, if I went this way, this would happen, and if I went that way, that would happen. And and the fear, of course, is to be is is to be stuck, you know. Like you must make a choice, you know. And these moments are kind of terrifying, you know. And I think that that some of these things that I've mentioned have some of that, you know. You wanting to make the right decision, wanting to not, you know, be overwhelmed by this 
and not wanting to be overwhelmed by this decision or this thing that has come to you, you know? Um, I think right. weirdly loved has not ever felt that way. I've just never, it's sort of like when it comes, because I think of this other thing, which is, um, I think it's so strange. Like if you're, for instance, in a job interview or you're showing your work to people or, or you're, you know, on a, on a date, you're meeting somebody and suddenly in the middle of the encounter, you think, oh my God, you know, I'm getting the job. I'm falling in love. They're taking my book. And it's just like, you didn't, I didn't know I was in that room. And suddenly I'm in that room, you know, and it's, it's very, it's like the thing that's nice about those kinds of transformations to me is that you didn't see them coming. You were just sitting in the chair, um, having your life and suddenly it was your life, you know? And so I, I, I applaud a, I applaud a threshold that doesn't, um, you know, that, that dare not speak its name, you know? Oh, I love that. Are those easier to write about or more fun to write about than the other kind? Because you've written about all, all these different things that we're talking about. And I wonder if some of them, if the ones mm -hmm. that you saw coming and therefore braced against are easier or harder to kind of write about after the fact than the ones that just kind of happened and you realized they were already done. I mean, I think the latter seem to be of the, in the order of the miraculous you know, and even if it's, mm, even if it's that's such a beautiful phrase. Yeah. I mean, I just think, um, there are things that, um, even if, even if they're, if, even if they're professional, the fact of the, the shading just radically shifting, you know, in the landscape of where you thought you were and who, and who or what you thought you were, um, you know, it just, that's, yeah, that's what seems miraculous to me. Um, Wait, can you give me an, an example of that in like your work life or, as a writer, when you all of a sudden you're different than who you thought you were? Well, I think that I think that in the midst of writing something, because I think, again, I think that I I mean, I, I tend to set I tend to know the location or the realm or the sort of in some general way what the subject matter of this um, thing I'm writing is. But it just it does seem to be a, it's 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 like it, I think it's of this order. I think it seems to be alive. So sometimes, you know, like, I mean, this is, I don't know how this works as an illustration, but I, you know, I, I you know, I have all sorts of wonderful conditions under which I like to write and, um, you know, and I could lay them out, you know, they're, you know, be, being adequately slept and exercised and fed and peaceful and, you know, meditated and all those kinds of things. But um, once I went on a, um, a retreat, with um, there's a uh, do you know do you know what Sister Spit is? I don't. There's a um, there's a I don't even know. I think it still exists, but it's like Michelle T. You probably know Michelle T. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, Michelle began. I mean, I met Michelle because she was sort of young, a twenty-something writer, and she contacted me in this kind of funny way, and just basically invited me to to be the the feature for this girl's open mic at a bar in San Francisco, and. I, you know, I agreed and I was going to be in San Francisco anyway. And I showed up and anyway, so Michelle did this, you know, an open mic and it turned into a tour that just still exists, but it was very special when Michelle and Cindy Anderson ran it. And it was just like, um, basic, mostly younger women would just pile into one or two vans and travel cross country, like a band doing readings and performances and clubs and coffee shops and just it was a, it was a touring kind of group but we were like a gang of writers and so it was really special and so radar kept it was called um 
it was called Sister Spit, but I think she wound up being funded by a nonprofit, and they called it Radar, and she had, a, she had a series at the San Francisco Public Library. It was very, it kept growing. And so it, finally, Radar had a retreat, and it was on the, I think, the Caribbean coast in Mexico. And I think that her, the guy who ran her nonprofit owned a condo in this, you know, in a, in, on the Caribbean in Mexico near Tulum. And so, and then they rented a second one. So there was just, there were just these two condos, but there were far in, in typical sister spit radar fashion. There were far more of us than would make for a good, quiet, respectable, um, writer's retreat. You know, like you didn't have your own room. <laughs> in some cases you didn't have your own bed. I mean, it was crazy. And so there was kind of no privacy, which, you know, really, you know, just, fucked with my head. I was like, oh God, how is this going to work? And, um, but what we had that was so interesting is we had hours, like we had to be silent from nine to 12 and two to four. And so everybody agreed to be silent in those hours. And then we all wrote around each other. You know, we just was like sitting on couches and counters and, you know, some people would go out to, so it was just kind of this. And so in that situation, I think I was sitting on a porch with you know, three other people writing. And um, I sort of had this idea that, that, um, you know, somebody, I, somebody at McDowell had, had, I had read some of this memoir I wrote um, about my dog, my pit bull, Rosie, um, mm-hmm. and, and Afterglow. And it's just like, and I remember somebody, I, I was reading some from that book as I was writing it at McDowell and somebody at McDowell said, you know, is Rosie going to, is Rosie going to speak? And I just thought, oh, that's so McDowell, like it's rosy. And, you know, like I'm not that kind of writer. The dog doesn't, (laughs) you know, this is about a real, you know, and so on. But, but I, I, you know, the the turn of mind, it's, I think it is the same turn of mind I'm trying to, I'm talking about, which is somewhat resistant. Like first I say, no, no, that's ridiculous. And then I think, huh, under what circumstances would Rosie speak though? And I thought about it and I, you know, I, I've, um, when I was about nine years old, I would take all these after-school arts classes, and there was a really wonderful after-school class that was puppet making. And I made these puppets, and I'm kind of obsessed with these puppets. And they've, you know, they've started to appear in my work all over the place. But I had this thought, which was, and you know, Rosie was dead, of course, when when I was writing this book. I thought if the puppets had a talk show and invited Rosie on as a guest, of course she would speak. You know, and so that's all I, you know, so when I was with Sister Spit, so I guess the the threshold is, first of all, an impossible writing situation. Like I would never want to write around other people, not people I knew and not people who were also writing. It was just the most, to my mind, the most horrible writing situation. But I had a prompt, which I think, you know, we all go to writing workshops at some point in our lives. And I think that um, what a career is essentially is you giving yourself prompts for the rest of your life and then you try and fulfill them and some work and some oh, don't. Oh God, what a way to think of that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so you're in your sort of st- the studio of your own uh-huh. mind offering prompts. So here I, I was in this radically wrong situation, but I had a prompt and then I sat down and then it was just like, it was the craziest thing. Like the dog, the dog and the puppets just started to speak. And it was one of the easiest things I've ever written. You know, and I and I I just it really did change me as a writer because I thought I thought fantasy was an insurmountable. I love fantasy, I love sci-fi, but I just didn't think that I could write it. 
And I realized that it's just like with the right prompt, you know, it's just like they just start chattering. You know, it's sort of like horses and puppets and dogs are no different from people, you know, because once you're once you're inventing, once you're, you know, your fingers are on the keys or your, you know, your fingers are on the pencil. It's just like the genies begin to speak, you know, and it's real and unreal. They're just sort of all, you know, they're all really coming from the same place. Yeah. Are you, are you sketching something right now? Um, just at that moment, I was, as I was holding a pencil in my speech, I started picking up an actual pencil. Yeah, it's true. So I'm doing some Foley, you know. <laughs> um, not to turn everything into a metaphor, but I love that as a sort of a metaphor for the broader, the broader arc of like, this is not possible, or I don't want this to happen. This change, yes. this prompt, mm-hmm. this thing, this like yeah. transformation in myself. And then you realize that it's already happened and actually it's completely magical. It's like you get um, trapdoored into some different version of the world that's actually better than the one that you were in before. Yes, yes. And so I think for, for me at least, no is kind of a threshold of, of a sort or a kind of a hyperbole where it just sort of creates this other, it creates this other space where things, I mean, I think when my um, when my selected was purchased by, Harper Collins, which was kind of a big moment. Like I really, I mean, I, I knew that I wanted a larger publisher to do my selected poems, but it hadn't happened until it happened. And, um, and so I was having my conversation with my editor and I remember him saying, you know, cause I gave him the manuscript and it had a certain title. And I remember him saying, why not new and selected? And I was like, no, no, it's a lot. I mean, like new and selected. What does that mean? You know? And again, it was the exact same thing. It was so funny. I remember going home and I thought, how would that work? You know? And then, because I, I, and I think I did ask him, I said, how would, you know, he said, yeah, you just put 20 pages of your best poems up front. People like it, you know? And it was such a, you know, it's just a salesman kind of way, you know? (laughs) So I, I went home and I thought, okay, I'll play that game. 20 pages of my best poem i mean i knew what those 20 pages were they were new i put them up front and it was just like the whole manuscript changed and it wound up having a different title and and i just think it was a better book and it was so funny that that this guy's jerky idea was so um triggering you know he said put 20 pages of your best new poems up front people like that and and you know and i did i mean i was like oh okay so I, i mean i went home and i tried it and um and it was actually great. It was just, yeah. You know, so it was just like, it was another, it was another negation. It was just like, oh, no. And then <laughs> just, just for the argument of it, just to, you know, so it's just like kind of, I think it is kind of, it, it raises, it's sort of, um, you do something that, I do something I wouldn't do ordinarily because I think, you know, I, 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 I think even, you know, like, the first time I wrote a novel, I think that I, first of all, I didn't want to tell anyone I was writing a novel. And then I thought, I'll just pretend I'm writing a novel. You know, I mean, I had a whole bunch of strategies that had to do with pretending and not. So I think, too, it's sort of like when when something is offered and then I say no, and then I think, well, what if I'll just try it? You know, it's, it's sort of like you're in a realm of disbelief where I think wild things can happen. You know, I, I was just reading for now, your most recent book. And so much of that book is about 
refusal, like an act of refusal, but very uh-huh. specifically the act of refusing to leave an apartment and then saying, well, maybe I will leave this apartment. Right, right. And then saying, no, I don't want to leave. And was that intentional as a, as a, as like an object lesson of refusal in the middle of a craft book? Um, oh, oh, no, oh, certainly not at all. In fact, it was like, it was just a, it was a gift. Um, because I was, again, <laughs> it's like, I mean, it's start, and now this is just such a theme, it's sort of absurd, but I think, um, you know, I wanted whatever money they offered me to write, to give this talk and to write this book. But I just thought, oh, why I write? That just sounds, I mean, I just didn't want to write a book about writing. It just seemed like very <laughs> redundant and heavy and just not something I was really excited about pontificating about writing. But because there was this very real situation, which was my my apartment where I'm sitting right now, my home, um, I, I felt like it was like a bait and switch. You know, I just thought, well, what if I just write about the apartment and I, cause I knew that would, if I, if I wrote about that, which was both exciting and painful, um, that at some point I would want to flee it. I would want to get away from it and that I would go anywhere, including why I write, you know, so that the two things, <laughs> the two things, I think it's something very Catholic about this. I don't know if any of you are Catholics, but there's just a sort of, um, kind of, I don't know. There's a kind of a negation. This is a kind of, um, antiness and Catholicism that, that I've used perversely, you know, I mean, I just think Catholicism does produce kind of a perversity because you're told there's such an elaborate system for what you're supposed to not do, you know, and well, (laughs) and you're told in great detail to some extent what it is so that there's something very kind of pornographic about the very, the very nature of, you know, um, the laws being laid out, you know, we just spent so much time in grade school laughing at these crazy things that, you know, like saints had to go through because they were being good. It was just, they were dirty stories. It was really crazy. So I think that just, you know, um, inside and outside are sort of right next to each other and my psyche, you know, and, and I just basically always need a place to flee. So the first thing might be like, no. And then, well, maybe, you know, Right. So you can con- you can construct for yourself a series of connected rooms that all have escape hatches eventually leading to where you need to be. Right. Right. And I think there's also there's just uh, what's that that realm? It's a, the ludic, you know, just the realm of play. The ludic winds up being really huge, you know, in this kind of mental construction. You're right. I, li- I think literature has wasted time. I don't uh-huh. think there's anything good about it. It's mm-hmm. not a moral project, except in this profound aspect of wasting time. Um, and if you establish that up front, then everything after that is just play, mm-hmm. right? Um, and did I guess my question, if I'm working my way toward a coherent <laughs> question, is what, <laughs> which is sort of what I'm supposed to be doing, um, is whether or not this book or any book you write feels like play or if it feels like this elaborate construction of carrot and stick um or if that's the play yeah yeah no I guess I guess it's I guess it's both because um and again I mean I just I was very resistant to writing this book you know I I was glad to go to Yale and give a talk and stand on my hind legs for an hour and and 
do that to get paid X amount of money. But then I owed them. And it was so weird. I mean, like I learned a lot about time and word count doing this book because like (laughs) an hour is approximately 7,000 words, it turns out. And the book that I had agreed had signed, I didn't even pay attention to the contract. I don't know why I, I just, you know, I was just like, yeah, give me the money, you know, and I, the, I agreed to write a 20,000 page book. So as soon as I stepped off the stage at Yale, I owed, I was in debt. I owed them 13,000 words. So I was gonna, I mean, so it's like, I felt like a lot of the process of writing the book for me was maybe trying to bring the reader in with me to kind of suffer this and, kind of hang out with me while I was trying to make those 13,000 words pass, you know? So it was sort of like, it was a burden, but I wanted to make, you know, I wanted to make it sort of playful and, and, you know, it's sort of like, and do what I was going to do anyway, which was to go through this whole drama about the apartment. And so I just think, you know, it just wound up being, you know, reflective of thinking, I mean, like, I think that what's, what was very fortunate, I mean, I just, you know, this generational aspects to this for sure, because I think that, one thing that's true about people who came to New York who are my age and came to New York when I came is that we all lived in these little cheap apartments. Like everybody could live alone, you know, so everybody had a studio, everybody, you know, and you you didn't need that much money. And so it was to be a young artist in New York at that time was relatively easy, but it, obviously it could become so easy that you just didn't do anything at all. You know, there was just like a fine line you know, but I think because I was a, a warrior and I just, this, you know, I, I say Catholic, but there's class things in here, too. It's sort of like it was such a ridiculous move to decide to be a poet for me, because I think, you know, I was my brother and I were the first ones in the family to go to college. You know, we were supposed to do something. You know, my dad was a mailman. My mother was a secretary. I've written about this. I was supposed to do something respectable and make my family feel good. And instead I was like a lesbian poet in New York. I mean, what could be worse, <laughs> you know, for my mother? And, um, and so I had already made a big mistake. And so it seemed like, like one of the things I learned from childhood and playing cards was, you know, the game of the game of hearts. And the thing that was so great about hearts is you had two options to go, go for all of the points or none of them. You know, it's like either way was a kind of winning, you know, and so I think that a lot of the posture I took as a young person, and I've really, it's just really become part and parcel of my writing um, practice is, is I'm not, I'm just wasting time. I'm just fucking around. I'm just, you know, because, because there was just, um, there was an enormous space of luxury and play that I think I somehow I never felt like I really had until I came to New York as a young artist. And so I just really went for all those points of kind of laziness and decadence, but it was where I hid my work, you know? And so I just feel like I'm always pretending I'm not working, but I'm actually, I'm really working hard, you know? And, um, and I, you know, in some essay I wrote someplace, I used that line that people used to always say in part-time jobs, working hard or hardly working, you know? (laughs) And it was kind of the working working class joke because you'd be like at your cash register in high school with your head on your chin, and some older <laughs> worker would walk by and say that, "Hey, working hard or hardly working," you know, and you'd go, "Ha ha!" But it just meant you were dreaming; you weren't working at all, you know. And, mm-hmm. and I think I wanted to do that and be that person, and you know, and put my work inside there. So I think that this I think this book is very nakedly doing that with kind of quote 
an audience or a readership, like sharing that um, that process, because I just had to fill that book, you know, with my dilemma, but both the dilemma of home and the dilemma of writing process. Yeah. And at the end, you do ultimately refuse to leave this, the kind of like, yeah. will they or won't they yeah, of the book yeah. is, will they or won't they leave after this initial refusal and then reconsideration? Um, and I don't know that, that sticking with that refusal mm -hmm. kind of stands out to me now in the context of the conversation that we're having about hmm. refusal usually being a point of then opening into some kind of ascent, but leaving the apartment was just like a hard, hard no. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, a hard, hard no, which is temporary because even, you know, it's so funny as I sit here, I mean, it was actually, I mean, I don't want to be too practical because it was, I mean, in terms of what happened the next year, i.e. COVID, it was actually a very good decision. But, um, but um, I still think about leaving. So in a way it just winds up being mortality, you know? <laughs> I just think it just, you know, in all the ways that I love and hate my apartment, it's I love and hate life. I love and hate my body. You know, I love and hate my existence. I love and hate being an artist, you know, and being a writer, you know, and it's like I'm condemned to be like this and do like this. And I guess I'd rather be here than not, you know, I mean, <laughs> even in a real, you know, it's just like, you know, it's one of the things that's interesting about, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm the generation that, you know, we, you know, I live with AIDS. My friends, you know, my friends were dying in their 20s, 30s and 40s when I was younger, you know, and that was just not what was supposed to happen. But now the regular thing is happening. Like a poet I um, knew pretty well, Lewis Warsh just died. And we're just, you know, it's just this thing where, that, you know, the Twitter lights up and everybody's like, oh, Lewis. And everybody starts sending Lewis poems and thinking about Lewis and, you know, and it's just like there's just this ongoing mourning, which just is watching human leaves fall off the tree and, and with this awareness that you will do that one day, not today though, you know? And so the whole mm -hmm. thing, I mean, I just think to write about writing is to write about living, I think. Mm. And about death. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Because it's sort of like the end is, you know, the work has to end, the piece has to end, you know? And I think that's so interesting too. I mean, I think whenever I heard that, um, I think it was, it was not a, a a writer who had this thought it was um what is this guy's name i think he's some kind of religious philosopher reinheld niebuhr or something I oh niebuhr yeah, yeah. reinhold niebuhr yeah and i think that he i mean i at least i from him something i read about him he had the thought which is that we don't we don't finish our work other people finish it for us you know it's sort of like your work is never done you know there's no there's no finishing here you know and it's like in the same way that I'm finishing other people's work and so there's there's all these re release valves like that of course which is that I'm I'm just part of this building thing you know it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't get done by Eileen you know even if I I finish this piece this book this you know this conversation we're having you know conversations are not over you know and that is a very relieving thought to me yeah, it it helps put you in in a continuum and relieve you of the of the pressure of having to kind of create something complete. Mm -hmm. There's a something that really stuck out to me because you write something almost directly that in this book, which is 
the ambition for the product or the writing to have a lot of the world in it, to be a little humble, messy, and dirty, so that people can enter, like they walk into a building, a public building. Mm -hmm. Since since once I'm done, it's theirs. I vanish into it first, but then you do too. And that's just such a like beautiful way of thinking of a body of work or even just an individual work as this thing that you are sort of making to enter into and then you'll leave and other people will come and move through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think a work of, um, a work of literature is like edificial, you know, it's sort of like we have a lot to do with architecture, you know, and, and and I, I think that we make something that's social, I think, you know, This connection between this, like the social mm-hmm. and death and refusal, mm. and refusal as a starting point for for making something kind of new and new and weirder and more magical than you thought, mm-hmm. is that all playing out in your work right now? It, whatever you're writing right now. Hmm. You know, I don't. I don't know. It's easy to say things about things that I've written rather than the things that I'm in, you know? Um, I mean, lately, I think, you know, like lately I feel like I've been writing, you know, I've, I've been writing, um, you know, I wrote, I wrote an essay about um, two photographers, um, Maura Davey and, and um, Peter Hujar, you know, and it wound up and it's weird because it became a continuation of this book, oddly, because things had happened in the book, continued to happen and and I linked them to you know so I've, I've been doing kind of a procession of um and I'm very obsessed with something that doesn't that is just um very real for me which is that I live in the East Village and I've lived here for you know since the 70s and there's a park um East River Park is is just one of my favorite places you know it's just like you know there's a running track there's baseball fields there's you know like there's a beautiful ecological center that that plants things and you know people it's just a great place and the city is planning to demolish it right now you know during what it's insane it's like it's a park that was robert moses built in 1939 for the people of new york basically for the poor people in a way and though interestingly he built it he built it um so that he could build fdr you know what i mean like he wanted to build a highway and the way he could sell it and get money was to say, I'll make a park for the people, you know? And so he did these two things, but it's, you know, it's been there and it's gone through lots of transformations, including being flooded by Sandy, but then the water just went back into the river, you know? And, um, but it's just, you know, it's one of the, I mean, it's one of the awful things I think, I mean, it, it sort of happened in 2018 and 2019. It's just, you know, it's just a real estate scam is what it is really. It's just like, it's flood, it's flood, control it's it's development posing as flood control you know because there was a very good plan in place that doesn't wouldn't have destroyed the park and then suddenly mysteriously this other thing happened and it just got railroaded through the city government and there's no publicity there's no evidence of this happening any place in the media which is just so scary because it's just not somehow i don't i don't know whether that's censorship or real estate power or that somehow it's local news because it's about 
poor people and people of color, but it's just like, you know, 100,000 people a year use this park. And supposedly in 2021, it's just going to be covered with eight feet of landfill. And then, you know, it's just, and it's going to take five to 10 years and it won't be a park when it's done. It's going to be concrete and astroturf and probably some high rises. One of the things that I'm interested in that I talk about in this book is, um, you know, things that you write, like writing a, a work, like a book or something, getting a structure going. And at a certain point, you start to realize that other things you wrote for other purposes can migrate into it. Um, and so I'm hoping that some of the things that I'm working on can just move into this novel. You know, like I wrote a piece for Book Forum last summer about Trist Tristram Shandy. I don't know if you've ever read that novel. I did. I had. I had to read it in high school, and I was so completely mystified oh, by it at the time. Horrible. Yeah, <laughs> I know. There's good things about it, but it's also terrible. Oh my god! I'm so. I feel so validated that that you also think that. No, it was not my favorite. But I, then again, I was 15. I feel like maybe I should revisit it just yeah. just in case. I mean, there are things that would probably delight you now because I found things about it that I like. But, it, you know, and I'd always just, you know, because it's such an early novel and it was such a um, when we didn't know what a novel was and it felt important to return to the roots of the novel and see what it looked like when people didn't know what it was, you know. And um, mm -hmm. and so there are there were there were payoffs, but also but I wrote, you know, I wrote an essay about it. And so that's like something that may or may not wind up in the novel, you know. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm kind of thinking of it that way as something very, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to use my most radical ideas about literature to construct a novel. Then I'll see how much I like it and work on it from there. Mm. Well, I hope it's full of very productive refusals. <laughs> I'm sure. I don't, I think I don't know any <laughs> other way to be perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.